Welcome to the For the Church Podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today I have with me once again my colleague, a illustrious pastor, PhD student, and Midwestern Seminary's social media and marketing manager, Ronnie Kurtz, a good brother. And we're going to talk about the organizing principle of a church. What is it, if there is something of standard by which every church should be organized around? What actually galvanizes a church? What should a church be centered on? What, for lack of a better word, drives a church? Yes, we're talking about what it means to be a gospel-driven or gospel-centered church. What does that look like? What could it look like for your church? What should it look like for the church uh, local and the church global? Ronnie, I'm sure you have some thoughts about this subject yeah. that you've prepared in advance <laughs> that we'll pretend are not prepared. <laughs> yeah, I actually don't have any on on that particular topic. I have okay. some questions that I want to ask you, Okay, uh, given the fact that you, know, you uh, have just come out with a book on this. And uh, I did uh, work through some of the book before this podcast uh, just to kind of think through it, uh, think some of your thoughts after you. And uh, it's, it's, it's so helpful. It's in my mind, it's, it's, it's classic Jared Wilson writing. And uh, for that, <laughs> I'm thankful. So, so thanks, for, thanks for doing that. Uh, the idea of a gospel-driven church, really the idea of gospel-centered, gospel-driven anything is kind of getting a lot of play. Yeah. And so – one of the things that I I just like to kind of think through what an author is thinking as he's writing. And so one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was reading this particular book is is why now? Mm-hmm. So why why is, you know, 2019 the right time to write the gospel-driven church? Yeah. Well, the best time probably would have been uh, several years ago, 20 years ago, um, because sort of the problem that I'm addressing, or I guess I should say, the the impetus for yeah for the book's um, uh, writing really began as a, sort of a, a modern manifestation in in the church um, out of the you know, the seeker sensitive movement, right? So church mm-hmm. growth movement. So we're really looking at in terms of uh, of recent church history. Um, late 1970s, but really kind of the early 1980s, and then the height of kind of the seeker movement. Still called that. We don't really hear you know hear that phrase anymore, seeker church or seeker sensitive. But the height of that would have been in um, in the early 90s, early to mid 1990s. So the best time to actually write this book would have been um, you know 20 some years ago, probably. But the next best time is now. So. <laughs> So I wrote it um, as soon as I could. Yeah. And there's really sort of two things that um, that I'm trying to do with the book in terms of why gospel-centered now or, or, or what is the place of gospel-centered now or the need for a gospel-driven uh, or a book about gospel-driven church now. And part of it is – so a few years ago I wrote a book called The Prodigal Church, which was published by Crossway. And that church uh, – that book is largely a critique of the attractional – uh, paradigm, which we've talked about on this podcast before, and if you know anyone's interested in, in sort of fleshing out what attractional means, you can kind of dig in in some other places. But um, that book was largely a critique, yeah. And there was one chapter that was kind of like a way forward, essentially. I think it was even titled the chapter was titled "A Way Forward," and but that was it. So what I discovered was that book kind of resonated with people who were uneasy about mm. some of you know, their church or things that were seen in different churches. 
and it was giving them kind of the vocabulary or, or just the, you know, the scaffolding, the, you know, biblical and theological scaffolding to, you know, frame around, you know, why things are off or, or what mm. they, you know, perceive as off. But it didn't really say, okay, here's what you do if, if you've decided you're off track and you want to get on track, what do you do? And so this book really is, a, is sort of a next step for that because I was hearing from a lot of people that would say, man, I'm sold. Um, but I don't know what to do. Like, how do I actually move forward? So I thought, how about a leadership manual of mm. sorts to help people transition uh, to greater gospel centrality? The other reason for, like, why now, and it's something I addressed um, in the introduction to my breakout talk at the Gospel Coalition, which was, la- um, yeah, at, at the time of this recording, it was last week. By the time someone hears this, it'll probably be <laughs> uh, two months ago. But at the most recent, at the 2019 Gospel Coalition Conference, I uh, presented a breakout on the gospel-driven church. And in the introduction, I essentially talk about the problem of recovering uh, or the need to recover the gospel recovery movement, right? Hmm. So I'm kind of playing off um, D.A. Carson's words. Uh, he's quoting a colleague of his, but um, I think it's in Basics for Believers, his little exposition of Philippians. He talks about how um, you know one generation uh, assumes the gospel and then the next generation loses the gospel. Wow. And I think we definitely see that in recent church history. I think we're just in this cycle of, of things. But I'm concerned about that in relation to gospel centrality. We're now in a, in a phase, you know, 10, 15 years on from the gospel-centered movement that we are seeing uh, further, tri- you know, tribalizing within that movement. It's not as unified as it once was. Um, what will together for the gospel look like in the mm. coming years, that sort of thing. We're seeing fracture points within our own movement over issues like social justice and politics and just, it, you know, all, all different sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and, but we still have people who are just, man, gospel, gospel, gospel. They love it. They love gospel centered. They're new. Um, several of the questions I got at the end of my breakout session were from guys that are like, they're brand new to this thing. And so we're in a, you know, sort of a, a, a cautionary mode in the sense of we can't just keep plowing forward as if everybody gets this. Yeah. Even the people who talk the language, just because you have gospel centered jargon, right? So mm. this is like the common joke is all the books are gospel this and we're going to have gospel community and we're going to eat, you know, gospel nuggets, you know, from the from the gospel chicken, you know, restaurant, you know, here. And because uh, we got a gospel church, why yeah. wouldn't we have it, you know, uh, in our gospel community groups with our gospel people, you know. So we just add gospel to everything. And, you know, to some extent, I think that's kind of overblown. But I also think there is a, a danger that it's just about the jargon or identifying with a particular tribe. I identify with the gospel coalition movement or whatever it is. And we don't actually have the rationale. Hmm. We don't really know what gospel centrality actually is. Yeah. So the book is, is in a way, trying to just put some skin on it. What would it look like for your student ministry to be gospel-centered? What would it look like for your kids' ministry to be gospel-centered? What does it look like for your worship service to be oriented around the gospel? Hmm. That's what I'm trying to do with the book, basically. Yeah, and that's so good because I feel like in today's culture, we have, we have a culture of critique. Um, yeah. I mean, even today, this is, this is going to date the podcast episode probably – but uh, the the day of recording this, NASA, I think is who it was, released a picture of the first recorded picture of a black hole. Yeah, it looks like a donut. Yeah, and I, <laughs> when they posted it on Twitter, I thought, oh, no, here comes the 2019 culture. <laughs> and sure enough, they came, yeah. and that picture was criticized. Uh, and this is a massive scientific discovery. That's right, the first photo <laughs> you know, of a black like, hole, and, and they're like, yawn. Yeah, the first hundred comments are sarcastic gifs making fun of it. And uh, <laughs> I just thought this is, this is the pinnacle of 2019. What isn't the pinnacle of 2019 <laughs> is being able to move past critique 
mm. onto construction. And so that's why I think the book has a lot of value in that way. Um, and I do think there's a lot to what you just said, Jared. You are hearing this like, you know, we're over-gospelizing everything, gospel this, gospel that. And if you think about it, a major refrain in the gospel recovery movement of, you know, the last two decades was the gospel isn't something we move past. It's something we sink deeper into. It's not just for our justification, but it's for every aspect of our life. And it's almost like we're happening to say now, hey, hey guys, we actually meant that. We're not moving past the gospel. That's right. Uh, it's okay to still talk about this, the, the gospel implications here or here, and it's still it's still good to talk about what it looks like to have a ministry centered on the gospel. One of the things you say in the you say in the book, and I've heard you say this a number of times. I think actually the first time I heard you say it, I don't remember what particular event we were at, but you were speaking at something that I was attending for for Midwestern, <clears throat> and you excuse me, you said something along the lines of whatever a church wins people with is what they win them to. And I, I remember the first time I heard that and just thinking, what a helpful line. Uh, just, just thinking in terms of we actually have to think about how we're winning folks. Right. Hopefully that is happening. We're winning folks. But we, we can't use any method in the book. What, what, we, what we win them with is likely what we win them to. I think you word it in the book this way. Uh, this is on page 37. The way a church wins its people will shape its people. And I would just love to hear you kind of flesh that out a little more. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, my concerns are with the attractional paradigms sort of employment of what I think is essentially pragmatism and consumerism. So the pragmatism is, is you know, taking what's practical, um, which the Bible is eminently practical. You know, there's lots of things to do. But taking the practical and turn it into a formula. Mm. If we do this, we will get this result. So you turn the practicality of Scripture or just best practices or what have you, things that make church ministry, you know, excellent or what have you. You take best practices or you take biblical principles and you turn them into formulas. And so it ends up being kind of our own version of the prosperity gospel in a sense. It's not necessarily theological, like if you trust hard enough, you're going to get material blessings. But you put that into the kind of church ministry model and you think, if you do this, you'll get this result. And you're living for the result, which is essentially how do we get as many people in the room as possible. And the intention is... Is, is honorable. We, we want as many people as, as possible to hear about Jesus. But you realize that front-loading Jesus doesn't get as many people in the room as possible. Mm-hmm. This is essentially as you walk down the road, and so you have to begin sort of making concessions about how you attract them. But once you've decided that Jesus isn't the primary attractant, right, because um, you know those who lead with Jesus discover he repels almost as many people, <laughs> if not more people, than he attracts. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this is not something that should take us by surprise. The scriptures say the gospel is, is an offense. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. So, and, and Jesus himself was not above this experience. John chapter 6, preaching to, you know, a, a gigantic crowd, you know, a megachurch-sized crowd who departed when he began to preach mm. himself. Um, but we want to try to avoid that. We want to keep the room full so that people can hear about this Jesus. But also the sort of consumeristic then approach then. How do you appeal to those people? Now you begin to ask these sort of consumeristic questions. And it's beyond um, hospitality, being welcoming, having good systems, uh, you know, where people can get assimilated or find out more information or what have you. Um, it largely becomes about what people's felt needs are or what they, or what they are seeking personally. And I think um, it, it jumps beyond the question of sometimes what people are seeking is not really what they need. Mm. Why would we cater to what they think that they need? 
um, what they think that they need may be correct. Mm. You know, I, I'm I'm missing God in my life. Well, okay, but for a lot of people, it's just sort of God becomes I just I need religion or spirituality or something. Uh, but others, I just need a community, a place where I feel like I can contribute and all those sorts of things. And those are valuable to your experience of church. But if we begin to cater to things like that, we begin to essentially feed people's consumeristic impulse. Yeah. So this is why we have um, so many different um, features of churches that are offered um, so often. It's to cater to as many types of consumers as possible. And so if you're winning people in consumeristic ways, essentially what you're winning is consumers. Mm. And what I've discovered is on the flip side, churches that are on the back side of this practice five, ten years down the, you know, um, you know, into the it, um, implementation, they're now having to troubleshoot. Why aren't our people wanting to grow? <laughs> Why aren't our people pursuing discipleship? Why aren't they maturing in their faith? Why won't they serve more? Why, you know, um, you, know the, you know, they're still feeders kind of thing. And anyone who, de- you know, who sort of, asks for more is sometimes seen as uh, as a complainer or mm. something like that. And so, you know, the problem with that is, well, you've won them in sort of a felt need consumeristic way, and now you're surprised that you have consumers who are focused on their individualistic self. The way you reached them was basically feeding that very desire. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. One other uh, aspect of the book that I, I just really enjoyed, and and this is even kind of not necessarily even about the book, but kind of using the book as a springboard to talk about the, the the bigger problem as a whole and just as a pastor feeling this tension because in no way do I think of myself as an attractional kind of pastor. Um, I, I think I would hope to self-identify in these, you know, these gospel kind of ways, but there are some aspects where the, where the, this thought of bigger is better is almost like gravity in yes. that it just pulls you. Um, even guys who are consciously moving away from it, like myself, it, it just kind of pulls you. And when it does, one of the things that you start to compare the way that you word it in, in the book, um, and I've just heard you word it this way in conversation, is just kind of that, that conversation between fruitfulness and faithfulness. Right. And, man, what a, what a tough line sometimes to balance. I want to be faithful to the gospel. I want to be faithful to preach the, the whole counsel of the word. I want to be faithful in matters of ecclesiology and taking church church membership seriously and church discipline seriously and, and all of the all of the, the church life stuff. I want to be faithful in all of that. Yet I do want to bear fruit. Yeah. Uh, I want our church to grow. That's not a bad desire that I have. It's not a weird desire. I want people to be baptized. I, I want to be able to uh, celebrate that the fact that our the baptismal waters are stirring frequently in our church. I, I want to see... Um, growth in all of those ways. And it's very easy, even in your own mind, to pit those against one another. And I, I thought you, you talked about that well, and I would just love for you to kind of flesh that idea out more here. Yeah, well, you know, first I want to affirm, just as you did, that that uh, the normal pastor wants to see growth in his church. Yeah. Like you're abnormal if, <laughs> if you're happy that your church is declining in numbers, right? Yeah. So we all want more people to come to our church. And even if you're committed to sort of a small church paradigm, right? So we have friends that say there really is such a magic number, whatever it is, you know, that's too big. Perhaps it's the size of your, you know, your seating capacity or what have you. But you still want, you know, people coming if only because that means there's more people you can send out on mission to plant churches. You you can mobilize more yeah. the more that you gather. So, you know, it, it's a normal, good, godly desire to want to reach more people. And I hope no one ever hears me 
um, implying or, or, or would take me to say um, that you should be disappointed in, in, in people coming to your church or your church growing. Um, the problem is when our heart is married to that as that's the sign of fruitfulness. Mm. Um, because we just have so many examples, um, not just in Scripture, but just around us of things growing in size that, um, you know, very clearly are not, you know, biblically aligned, right? Mm. There are, uh, you know, prosperity gospel churches that we would all acknowledge. They're not teaching, you know, teaching the true gospel, and yet they're overflowing with people, you know, thousands, thousands of people uh, flocking to that message. So a lot of people liking something is not itself a validation of that thing. It doesn't mm. verify, uh, you know, that kind of success doesn't in and of itself authenticate the message, um, on, on the other hand, we you know want to confirm that you can be faithfully preaching the gospel, and and you know working in in good faith to love your community, to evangelize, all these sorts of things, and not see an abundant harvest of numbers. That you know a lot of this is context uh, dependent. Some of it not, but there are times as you know we have the indication in scriptures of you know as I said of you know people. Uh, re- rejecting Jesus. If they did it to him, they'll do it to you. Mm. Um, but we also just have these little indications implied, you know, Paul saying to Timothy, it, uh, preach the word in season and out of season. That tells me that there are times, whatever Paul means, that where the word may not be favorably received. So you can be faithfully preaching the message and it not having a demonstrable response numerically. So that's why in the book I began to say, okay, what is success actually? Setting aside the neutrality of numbers, right? I'm not saying having a lot of numbers is bad. Um, but setting that aside, what does fruitfulness look like? Does it look immediately uh, like numbers? And so I, I, I use in the book um, a historic reference point, Jonathan Edwards, and mm-hmm. his distinguishing marks of a true move of the Spirit of God. Decided, let me take a guy who experienced revival in American history and, and bring it into the present day. What does he say? This is a guy who yeah. had... I, at at least at that time, uh, a lot of quote unquote success, things that visibly would look like success. What does he say um, is is the validation of it? How do I know this is really from God? And so you have to ask questions that go much deeper. What does fruitfulness actually look like? And it turns out that it's things that are harder to quantify. I don't think they're impossible to kind of gauge, but they're harder than just counting numbers and counting dollars. And so Edwards thinks, you know, says things like uh, a discernible spirit of repentance, mm. an evident love for neighbor, uh, a, a devotion to the word of God, all these things that uh, sound somewhat subjective because they kind of are subjective. But nevertheless, if we're well-tuned leaders, good you know, pastoral um, oversight actually is able to have a finger on the pulse yeah, of these things. That's right. And so what I try to do in the book is to actually share some questions you might ask that go deeper. Um, it's it's kinds of measurements. Um, it, it, it's based mainly on percentages, and it is raw numbers. You know what percentage of your weekend attendees are involved in community groups, involved in evangelism, like you know different things like that. The percentage of those that you baptize or welcome as members are still active in the church five years later, still walking with the Lord. Those are more telling numbers because mm. they speak to fruitfulness rather than just the immediate. This, you know, decision or or what have you. Yeah, that's so good. And one of the things that struck me was, and I think about this often, is when, when we think about fruitfulness versus faithfulness, uh, really, uh, though we might tread into Sunday school answers here, the gospel really gives us both. Yeah. I mean, we, we are called to make the gospel known, 
And that, that's what we're trying to do with church in our, in our gatherings. That's what, that's what we're hoping for. This is why we don't have to choose between, you know, the disciple discipling the believers who are there or trying to, uh, to win the non-believers who are there. Well, the gospel is going to do both. Yeah. And in the same way, if, if we are faithfully expounding the gospel through our services and our services are kind of bent around making much of Jesus and what he's done in the gospel, well, then what, what you start to see is, one, you're being faithful, and two, the gospel will bear fruit. Yeah. And so it, it might not look exactly the same as, you know, programmatic, attractional-driven stuff, but, but the gospel will bear fruit. That's right. Yeah, I don't think we need to set faithfulness and fruitfulness against each other in a sense to say faithfulness is success or faithfulness does lead to fruitfulness because, the, you know, the gospel never does nothing. That's right. Um, and so you just have to understand biblically what fruitfulness actually looks like. And so even if you're not drawing, you know, hundreds of people to your church or, or what have you, um, a, you know, steady, faithful preaching of the gospel and, and shepherding of your people and evangelism, um, all those sorts of things begin to shape the life of a congregation. They, it will bear fruit. Mm. And perhaps the immediate fruit that you see is just people's affections changing for Christ and those sorts of things. And so Edward's questions or, or his markers just you know, kind of help us go deeper in those things. All right, let's take a break right now and um, have some coffee perhaps and uh, hear a word from our host at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. We're talking about the gospel-driven church. I just happened to have written a book on this subject, (laughs) and uh, we just happened to be having a podcast uh, about the subject. Uh, The book came out in March from Zondervan. The subtitle is Uniting Church Growth Dreams with the metrics of grace. And I have to tell you, Ronnie, there's been, um, there's at least two controversies that have gone to this subtitle. Is that right? It is, yeah. So I had a, a good back and forth with, um, with uh, Zondervan, the good folks at Zondervan, about this subtitle. And uh, I'm glad we arrived where we arrived. But originally, we just sort of went all around uh, uh, the mulberry bush with it. Uh, they wanted the word megachurch in it. So Whoa. like uniting megachurch dreams or something like that. And I, I didn't want to do that. Um, I understood what they meant by it. They meant the same thing that sort of the, the current subtitle is communicating. But I just was afraid of the way it could be taken. Yeah. So what I pictured in my head was a megachurch guy seeing the subtitle and thinking, oh, it's, a, it's just one, you know, it's one more critique of megachurches. Yeah. It's not for me. And then at the same time, the small church guy looking at it going, <laughs> oh, this is for people who want a megachurch, and I don't really care about that. Mm. So it's not for me. And now I'm cutting off two sides of – my audience inadvertently. And so, you know, I want you to know those who are listening, um, because sometimes it's a misconception that when I say attractional, other people say attractional, they are equating that with megachurch. Mm. And so one thing I do in the book is actually to, um, you know, distinguish that attractional is a paradigm. You can be a small church that is, is doing attractional ministry, or you can be a big church that's doing attractional ministry. You can be a small church that's gospel-centered. You can be a big church uh, that's gospel-centered. So it's not about church size, and I don't critique church size. I, I don't think there's 
you know, um, anything sinful about a particular size of church. To me, it's what are you sort of putting the weight, uh, trusting to be um, the change agent in, in your message. Yeah, that's a good um, way to put it. And in your ministry. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, the old adage, this is a little a little superficial, but you're, you're pointing out uh, the subtitle, and I have the book here in front of me and just, just made me think of this. Uh, the old adage is don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> but if you did judge a book by its cover, this is a good yeah. one. Is it? I, I like this one. So, so I'm props. pretty proud of it. Actually, um, you know, every time you go through the process, they, you know, you fill out this little form and it's things, um, you know, marketing considerations. And it's actually usually the marketing team that does book covers. I don't know if people are aware of that. And many times these marketing teams have not read the books. Uh, they have uh, a synopsis perhaps. You know, they know what the book's about maybe. But they're not familiar with the content. They just you know, have a summation of the message, and then they want to represent that. And sometimes it can go <laughs> it can go vastly wrong, <laughs> um, particularly sometimes even like titling um, yeah. is done by a committee that very often has not read the book. And so they're just thinking what will sell, and it doesn't exactly match um, what's in the content of the book. Uh, this is actually I'm, – I'm in a process right now with a Bible study with a different publisher, and we've been talking about the subtitle. And uh, they originally wanted to use the word disappointment in the subtitle. Because they think that you know speaks to a particular need and mm. certain readers, and I say, well, absolutely does, and I think that's an important subject to write on. But I don't really deal with that specifically enough in the book to that be the subtitle. Yeah, that, that this yeah. It's about disappointment. So yeah, with this one, I really just had to kind of you know they wanted mega church because they thought it was you know gripping or or compelling. I thought it actually would turn people off, and so we ended up with this church growth dreams because everybody aspires to church yeah. growth in some way. Um, but then I say with the metrics of grace, which was another concession we made, and I've taken some heat from people saying, how do you measure grace, which that's not really what it yeah, means. Of course. It basically means how would grace define how you measure yeah. um, is, is kind of what we mean by that phrase. Yeah. Well, well, the content of the book is great, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to see it matched by a, a great title and great cover. <laughs> so you often don't get that. Right, so right, yeah. You and often... I said what I wanted. You know, um, I honestly said I, I, I hate Rob Bell's theology. But I love his book covers. Yeah, so can yeah, we shamelessly go. steal? Like, can we plagiarize his design? Because uh, he's got some great covers, especially yeah. like the original hardback editions. And uh, so I said, yeah, you know, I'd like to see something like this. And um, they came up with something great. It's reminiscent. Yeah. It's really, it's very rare to find an original, you know, book cover. And so sometimes you see books come out at the same time and they have the same design. So I feel like it's unique while being reminiscent of things that are eye-catching. And, yeah, that's and great. Have you. That's yeah. great. No. So the book, as we mentioned before the break, which, by the way, I always love that you're assuming the, the readers are going to get coffee during the break. Why wouldn't they? I, I am asking the same question. <laughs> I'm assuming that they're drinking coffee while they're listening the I whole time. So. And the break is just a time to, like, reflect, <laughs> have a deeper sip. These these are worthwhile listeners. <laughs> Right. So as as you said, as we said before the break, this is a constructive work. We're, we're you're moving here, not to just point fingers, but to say here's actually how we move forward. And I I think that that's going to be the response of readers, even in myself. I, again, I said I, I'm not really I don't really sympathize at all with the attractional movement, but there are those those attractional gravitational pulls that oh, yeah. I have in myself. And there's even times where you know I, I was working through the book and just you get convicted of man I, I think I might be more attractional than I want to admit <laughs> in, in some ways um, because e- even the way you explain your church or invite invite people to your church it's easy to fall into that that black hole to bring yeah. it up again uh, of you know you should come to our church because we're different than those churches in right. these ways and. 
uh, man, how how unhelpful can that be? And, and so so let's let's talk for a moment about uh, let's say a pastor's reading this book and he's he's having some of those impulses. Okay, so he's saying, I'm not attractional, but I probably have some of this gravitational towards bigger is better kind of mentality, and I, I want to even use strong language of I want to repent of those tendencies and I want to move forward pressing into the metrics of grace, as you call them, how would you advise that brother? Uh, what does it look like for him to start taking steps that way? Yeah, I think it begins with asking a lot of why questions. So sometimes, you know, questions I get in response to this concept or a critique of attractional is sort of like, well, is does that mean, you know, you don't have lights in your worship or <laughs> different things like that? And I say, well, we don't. And there's a reason why we don't in terms of like lighting design like or what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, you know, we don't, but it's not because we think laser immediately means sinful, right? It just means at the beginning, we want to ask, why are we doing this? Mm. And a lot of that revolves around what you think the worship gathering is. And so to me, it's not a yes or no. Can you, you know, turn on the hazer or what have you on Sunday morning? Um, it is, why do you do that? What's the purpose of it? What are you facilitating? And then what does that say about um, what you think of worship? Mm. What's it meant to be for? And so I think asking why questions really help. So, you know, some of the, you know, what you just described in terms of there's things that we end up doing the way we describe our worship gathering or describe our church. Yeah, sometimes the adjectives are very telling, right? So you see in church, am I against church marketing or church advertising? No, not necessarily. But what, you know, you, you know, to have... Uh, a visible presence to let the world know you're there. There's nothing wrong with that. But what you're communicating is demonstrating what you believe about the gathering and who it's for. So if you say things like, we have um, exciting worship or engaging worship or what have you, well, depending on what you mean by that, but typically it's, it's consumeristic terms trying to appeal to a particular kind of worshiper and it could inadvertently communicate that the worshipers for the, uh, the worship is for the worshiper Mm. and, and, and not for the Lord. So, you know, the adjective exciting or relevant is different than God-centered. That's an adjective, but it communicates something different. So I think it just begins with asking lots of why questions. So the pastor just being, you know, taking a ruthless inventory. Why do we do it this way? Why do I want this? Um, And then, you know, what's the purpose of that? And then being able to ask with others, you know, I mean, it's one of the beauties of plurality in, um, in eldership is that you can actually you you see the motivations when they're out on the table and you know under inspection with others who who love you and share the same burden and are trying to move forward um, with you as well. And one of the things I do in the book that I try to sort of bring some of this more to light in an illustrative way is tell a story. So yeah, um, I'm following uh, you know so I rip uh, Rob Bell off with the cover. I'm ripping <laughs> ripping Patrick Lencioni off with uh, with the content. And I was unfamiliar with his stuff. Uh, you know Patrick Lencioni's a uh, leadership business, um, you know, book um, author, very popular author. And the first time I encountered his work was here at Midwestern. And one of our IR department, um, you know, every semester we go through a leadership book and we read Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And I I found the book really interesting. And the approach he uses really, I thought, could um, helpful. Hmm. Essentially what he does is um, he calls it a leadership fable. And um, so if you're not familiar with Lencioni's work, he, he tells a story where in every chapter, half the chapter is essentially the principles that he's laying out for that given topic. And then the other half of the chapter is an is a story, is an illustration. And essentially, it's an ongoing story. So if you were to sort of divide the book up, half the book is essentially this story, half of a novel 
of, um, in, in the book we read, it was a, a nephew who was inheriting a construction company from his uncle mm. and how he was implementing these principles that Lencioni is laying out. So that's what I do in the book, actually, is tell the story of a fictional church. It's an amalgamation of some different you know, churches I know and friends I know who are kind of journeying through this process, uh, so inspired by them. But it's a, you know, uh, imaginary example of a guy who's wanting to transition his church to gospel centrality, from attractional to gospel-centered. And so in every chapter, we pick back up with Pastor Josh and all of the things that he's working through with his uh, student minister, his kids minister, his worship arts director, all the things uh, that might go into uh, what it takes to transition a church um, to gospel centrality. And my hope with that is that um, those in ministry will begin to see, like, conversationally and illustratively how these things might flesh out, Yeah. Um, w- what it looks like on the ground. So it's not just this theoretical, here are the ideas, but actually, if you begin to lead this way, uh, what it might actually look like in, in your local church to do that. Yeah, well, for a guy like me who, who enjoys theology, thinking about the church, and loves literature, you just gave me the one-stop shop. So, there so, you go. So thanks for doing that. Excellent. I shall see you for those— uh, listeners who might not know the, the, the deep tracks of Jared Wilson and haven't read <laughs> Otherworld at this point. So we get a little taste of uh, the, the literary side of, of Jared Wilson here in the book. There you go. <laughs> well, brother, it's been good talking with you. I, I could talk about this subject all day. Um, if you're interested in the book, I do hope that you'll check it out. Um, it's been endorsed by some great friends like Matt Chandler and Dave Harvey and Eric Geiger and Robbie Gallaty and all sorts of um, fellows. You can find it on Amazon or wherever uh, Christian books are sold. And uh, I do hope that it will be a service to your church. Um, If you like the podcast, I really do hope that you like the podcast. Uh, But if you do, please leave us a good review on iTunes. Share it with your friends. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.